thought I wasn't going to make it out in time, didn't you? Yeah, I did too. <clears throat> so this morning we move into the second uh, movement of our series in preaching, and throughout the series we have been tapping into the imagery of one verse from Psalm 27, verse 4. Would you join me? Let's read this together. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. First few weeks we focused on that phrase, dwelling on the house, in the house of the Lord all the days of our lives. Today we begin the second movement, what it means to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. And our goal is uh, to prayerfully seek out other places in the pages of Scripture where we see an image of gazing at the beauty of the Lord that might speak to us further on these things. So today, we start with the passage you just heard, Hebrews 12. Let's hear the first two verses one more time. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Very simply put, before we even begin to dig into the passage, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord is to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. But let's take note that chapter 12 of Hebrews, <clears throat> verse 1, begins with the word, therefore. And that means that we will only be able to fully grasp what the writer is saying if we ask the question what the therefore is there for, as they say. And the therefore is there to point back to everything that came before this in Hebrews chapter 11, where the phrase, by faith, pops up 14 times. Chapter 11 opened with these very famous words. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And then the chapter, mar chapter 11 marches through this uh, list of the ancient heroes of faith who indeed kept confidence in what they hoped for and clung to the assurance of things they simply were not able to see even amid very difficult time. Furthermore, the writer will go on to say they never really received the things they hoped for, but they kept trusting God anyway. They were faithful. But in the end, in a very real sense, they still hadn't found what they were looking for. Faith, then, is about endurance. It's about seeing something beyond what is right before our eyes and pressing on. None of these faithful people, we are told in chapter 11, verse 13, none of them received what they were promised. Some accomplished great things. Many were persecuted and tortured for their faith. And then the writer sums up this chapter in verses 39 and 40. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Now that word translated as perfect means whole, complete, mature, finished. Perfection in this case is not about being sinless or being spotless. It's about maturity. It's about reaching the goal and finishing what has been started in us. Now, having laid out for us this long list of faithful people who have not yet received all they were promised, then, again, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 1, exhorts us, one more time, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witness, cloud in the ancient world being an, an image of a crowd, 
cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. These heroes of the faith are not just spectators. They are also running the race. They're not merely in the stands cheering us on. They are cheering from the roadside. And they are ready to cross the finish line together with us. And so in this race of life and faith, today we can find encouragement from all those who have gone before us. Not only those listed in Hebrews chapter 11, but also all the heroes of the New Testament and all the heroes down through church history for the last 2,000 years. They are our example. And the writer tells us to throw off everything that hinders us, and in particular, the sin that so easily entangles us. Runners running in competitive foot races in the ancient world would remove all clothing so as not to be hindered in any way. Sorry for that image. In the same way, there are things that hinder us. Sin hinders us. Our rebellion against God in whatever form that might take. Sin hinders us. But there are other hindrances too. And the things that hinder us, of course, are not always bad things. But when it comes to faithfulness, even too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. St. Ignatius of Loyola, a hero of mine, might refer to these hindrances as disordered attachments disordered attachments. It's okay that they're in your life, but you're attached to them in a disordered way. It's not that they're bad. Perhaps you are too attached to them or you have, you, uh, they have too high a place in our, in our lives or our priorities. We may even idolize them. And if we do, even though they be good things normally, they will hinder us in the race of faith and life. All these saints who have gone before us have done their best. They have showed tremendous faith and endurance amid persecution and difficulty. But we, we have something they didn't have. We run this race, Hebrews 12, 2 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When Jesus is described as the pioneer and perfecter of faith, that word perfecter, again, is the same root, root word that we had counted, counted back in uh, Hebrews, uh, last verse of Hebrews chapter 11. There we were told that we and those who have gone before us together will be made perfect. Same root word. So if Hebrews 11.40 says that we will be made perfect, how are we to be made perfect, whole, complete? By Jesus, who is the perfecter of faith. Jesus, he is, he is the pioneer who goes ahead of us. He is the one who crosses the finish line ahead of us and takes us with him. And here, the author of Hebrews refers to him as Jesus rather than Christ, and that's probably intentional. Christ and Jesus are the same person, of course, but when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we are reminded that he was not only fully God, he was fully human. He suffered and died as a human being. And because of the faithfulness of Jesus, we can have confidence in what we hope for and we can have assurance in what we simply cannot yet see. So if we are going to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, we're going to do it best by gazing upon, by beholding, and by contemplating Jesus, fixing our eyes on him. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the one about whom Albert Einstein remarked, One of my favorite quotes. He says, I am a Jew, but I'm enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual 
presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. A few weeks ago, we looked at Jesus as a 12-year-old boy who stayed behind in the temple in Jerusalem when his family headed home after Passover, and he did so without permission. And I, I said then that to be God in the body of a 12-year-old boy is to be, I suppose, a remarkable 12-year-old boy, but still a 12-year-old human boy. A boy who apparently did what preteens and teens sometimes do. He decided it was easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. He stayed in Jerusalem without telling his parents. I don't know about you, but I would have been in trouble for that. You know, we're not... In my experience, we're not always comfortable talking about Jesus as a human being. After worship that Sunday, when we talked about that, Richard Strohschein approached me to tell me about a recent interview with Dallas Jenkins, who is the creator of the streaming series The Chosen, which is, if you haven't seen it, is a retelling of the life and the ministry of Jesus. It's a creative retelling that takes some artistic license and adds backstory to what we can know from the Gospels. As writers and producers seek to fill in the gaps, some of the gaps, they seek not to change what is written in Scripture, but to imagine, to suggest that things that might have happened and are plausible. Jenkins himself says that he considers the show plausible fan fiction. Plausible fan fiction. And as you can imagine, for some people, that's a bit controversial. So I listened to the interview that Richard was talking about. I've linked it in your Bible app live event. I've also linked the, the webpage for the Chosen television series. And at one point in the interview, Ed Stetzer invites Dallas to comment on the pushback he has gotten from viewers on some of these places where he's been a little more creative in the retelling as he seeks to show viewers a more human Jesus. And one of those places was the portrayal of Jesus rehearsing the sermon on the mount. Dallas responded that the portrayal of Jesus rehearsing his sermon has gotten the most pushback by far so far in the series. People who love the show did not like the portrayal of Jesus practicing the sermon on the mount. They didn't think Jesus should practice anything. He should just know how to do it. Why is that? Why do we get so bothered by a more human portrayal of Jesus? I preach almost every week and I rehearse. I run things by others at times. Why do we see it as a contradiction of Jesus' deity to rehearse what he was going to say and how he was best going to communicate it? Isn't that what human beings do? Everything we do, everything we learn to do, we do by rehearsing, crawling, walking, talking, riding a bike, reading, speaking publicly. Why not Jesus? Okay, everybody's still in their seats? That's good. Those who first read the letter to the Hebrews faced persecution. And we can hear that in chapter 11 in that list of people who faced persecution but were faithful and endured all sorts of mistreatments along the way. In verse 2, we are told about Jesus of chapter 12. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus arrives at a place of victory, the throne. 
But to get there, he first endured persecution and death. He was faithful in the suffering, like so many of the faithful who had gone before, and like the writer is calling his readers to be as well. They were exhorted to fix their eyes on the human side of Jesus because like us, he was called to endure suffering and difficulty. Like him, and because of him, we too can endure and remain faithful. In chapter 12, verse 3, the author refines the exhortation to fix our eyes on Jesus a bit further. Consider him, Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus was fully God and fully human. That is the orthodox faith. But sometimes here on the ground, in the, midst, the middle of the fray of all things, we need to become more familiar with Jesus as a human being as one who was tested and tried and tempted in every way that we are, but was without sin. We need to know that Jesus. I, I often hear people say, yes, but he was Jesus. You can't do that. What it means to be God in the flesh means to be a human being. And what he was able to do, to some degree, I believe we are able to do. We have an example and in him we can be made complete and whole and perfect. In him we have hope because he endured, we can endure. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the human one who lived, suffered, and died for his faithfulness so that we too can endure whatever opposition we face, so that we too will not grow weary and lose heart. We focus on Jesus, whom we are told back in Hebrews chapter 1, is the radiance of God's glory in the exact imprint or representation of God's being. Over in John, Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father God. If we want to know God, we do that best and most completely by getting to know Jesus. If we want to know God, we do that best and most completely by getting to know Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Kim and I had dinner with a, a couple uh, last year who, who do not identify as Christians, though they certainly would consider themselves spiritual. And at one point in the evening, as we were kind of talking about faith and the challenges of living with uh, other human beings, doing community with other human beings, imperfect human beings, the woman of the couple said something that I want to share with you with her permission. In her frustration with her experience with religious people and honestly with the larger Christian church in general, she said this, I just wish we could find a place to worship and belong that just wasn't so Jesus-y. Now what I wish I'd said to her that night, and what I eventually did say to her was this, well that's a shame. Because when it comes down to all the things the church is and does and has gotten wrong over the past 2,000 years, Jesus is really the best thing we've got. Jesus is the best part of us. Though sometimes we obscure him to the world. And if Jesus is really the best thing we have going for us, we need to pay attention to him. We need to gaze upon him. We need to behold the beauty of the Lord in the face, in the life, in the actions, and in the teaching of Jesus. He is the exact representation of God's being. So let us consider a few things as we close. Let's consider those people we baptized a few moments ago. 
They have committed their lives to Jesus. The best thing we can teach them from the start is how to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus. How to continually live life in communion with Jesus. Learning from Jesus, reflecting on Jesus, considering him, beholding him, gazing upon the beauty of the Lord in Jesus Christ. Same is true of those generations that Pastor Chuck mentioned in his sermon last week, in particular, Gen Z. For those of you that don't know, these are all people born anywhere from 1997 and on. The generation before them are the millennials, anyone born from about 1981 to 1996. And before that, Generation X, of which I consider myself an honorary member. I missed the cutoff by four years, but I am, if they'll have me, a Gen Xer inside where it counts. <laughs> and Gen Xers were born between 65 and 1980. There, before that, we get the baby boomers. Now, we here at ECC... <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, they matter too. Um, <laughs> we here at ECC spent two years studying and processing and dreaming about how we could do a better job reaching out to and discipling young adults in our congregation and in our community. We, last year we called pastor of young adults, Pastor Chuck, who is called to pastor Gen Z and younger millennials. If we're going to connect with and reach young adults, Gen Z and millennials, there are two things we need to do well. At least two things I want to talk to you about right now. I said earlier that the best thing we can do for young adults in our community, in our congregation, is to teach them to fix their eyes on Jesus, but honestly, that's actually the second best thing we can do for the young adults. That's the second best thing. The first best thing that we can do for young adults in our community, in our congregation, the first best thing is to fix our eyes on Jesus. That's the best thing we can do for anybody. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Why? Because as the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 2, verses 2 and 3, his, his goal for those who are reading his letter, and he says, and anybody else I haven't even met yet, is this, that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's an amazing verse. We gaze upon Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge of God. We do this for ourselves and we do this for the generations that will follow us. How do we gaze upon Jesus today? How do we keep our eyes fixed on him? We've already been encouraging you for the last few weeks um, to do one of these things, and that is to read the Gospels. Spend some time each day in the Gospels. The first four books of our New Testaments, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's no pressure for how much you read any day. There's no prize for going the fastest through the Gospels. That's actually the opposite of what we want. There's a Richard Foster, who's a writer and a contemplative, spent a whole month one time in one chapter. Just read it every day in the Gospel of John. It's not about doing more or doing it fast. And there's no guilt if you miss a few days. But fixing our eyes on Jesus begins there. We encounter, we reflect on, we become familiar with Jesus in the pages of the Gospels. And again, several resources are linked in the Bible app live event, and that's how you get to it if you don't have it. 
One of these resources that we have for you in the Bible app uh, this week is an imaginative prayer practice, and you can find it there as well. And the, the link is labeled Prayer Practice Being Known, or you can also find it, if you just want to do this, at our, on our website there, ecclife.net slash being known. But this morning, I want to do something different. Uh, this is the, this, what, I'm about, what we're about to do actually caused me to wake up a few times in the middle of the night so I really want to do this. So, uh, but we're going we're to do it. This morning, I'm going to invite all of us to spend a few minutes gazing on the face of Jesus as he has been represented in art down through the centuries and in various cultures. There's an artist I've met and follow on Instagram named Scott Erickson. I do this with his permission, by the way. A few months ago, he created a video using various depiction of, depictions of Jesus over the last 2,000 years from around the world. He took the images from these works of art, and he fed them into a program, and he animated them slightly. Now, I realize this might be strange for some of us. It might be, be a bit unnerving. We might have questions. Wait, are these false images? Are we doing something? No, they're not false images. We're not worshiping these images. We're letting the artist's interpretations speak to our imaginations. These images aren't Jesus any more than the actor Jonathan Rumi's portrayal of Jesus in The Chosen is Jesus. It's art. His portrayal is meant to stir us and to speak to our imaginations. Or put another way, if I read a book by Philip Yancey or Beth Moore on Jesus, I am not worshiping their depiction of Jesus or their interpretation. I'm letting their perceptions, their understanding, their experience of Jesus, I'm letting the, the art of their words speak to me about Jesus and inspire me and cause me to gaze upon Jesus. So we're going to sit and we're going to gaze upon this art for about four minutes and you may find it strange. You may find it unnerving. That's okay. It really is. And as you watch this, notice some things. How do your heart, your mind, and your body respond to what you're seeing? There's no right or wrong answer to that. We just need to pay attention to it. For our reactions and our emotions and our thoughts tell us something about our perceptions of God and Christ and about ourselves. What impact does this exercise have on you? What thoughts does it stir? What emotions rise to the surface? And when the video is over, we will sit in silence for a few seconds, and then I will close this in prayer. Right now, before we start it, if you want to hit the lights, uh, Sam, let's just take a few seconds uh, in silence, and then I'll start it for you.
God, above all else, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. We thank you for his humanity as well as his divinity. We thank you that you have entrusted him to us and that he has brought us to you. I pray for each of us, God, whatever um, our reactions, our emotions, our thoughts may have been in that exercise, God, that you would speak to us, that you would create in us a curiosity, a desire, a hunger to know you more, to gaze upon Jesus, to gaze upon the beauty that is in Jesus, that is in you, all the days of our lives, God. We ask that you would take all of this and cause it to bear the fruit in each of our lives that you want it to bear, cause it to bear the fruit in this congregation that you want it to bear. And we entrust ourselves to you, Lord. We entrust ourselves to you. We look to you. We trust you. We ask that you do whatever it is you want to do in our hearts, in our lives, in our relationships. In Jesus' name.